and uh, it was a small, it was a startup that got bought by a big company, and we were we we lived on it as a video game company because we were all remote, right? We're all working from different areas, and we messaging was our office. And when that product that got bought started having quality issues, it would crash, it would lose our data, it was so frustrating. Um, we and and we just we just okay, how do we leave? How do we export data? It wouldn't let us export. When we stopped paying our subscription, it paywalled us from our own information. We had like 26 gigs of information in that in that SaaS service. Everybody and welcome to Conversations with Bacon. It's absolutely wonderful to have you here. I hope you're all safe and well. And I'm absolutely just just thrilled to have on the show Ian Tien, who is the CEO of Mattermost. Now, how are you doing, Ian? Excellent. Thanks, Jodo. I think I should be calling you Ian. We were just talking about how to pronounce names, and I've never known of anyone called Ian who's been, who's been introduced as Ian before. I'm tempted to call you Ian for the rest of the show, but before we get into it, I want to go through... Uh, the rap sheet because you've had a really really interesting career and i think obviously many people will know you for the for the great work you're doing at mattermost but um so you're the ceo of mattermost and this is a, a platform we'll get into this in more detail that is all about high trust collaboration and people collaborating together electronically uh and thousands of companies are, are using mattermost today um, you also previously founded spin punch who were a, a, an award-winning online video game company millions of players across like I think it was over 190 countries, something like that. Yep. Um, you used to be you used to be uh, VP of product at FlickMe, which was a, a movie streaming startup that was backed by Sequoia, uh, Warner Brothers, and Sony Pictures. Uh, and before that, you ran product management for Microsoft SkyDrive and Windows Live Photo Services. That's now known as OneDrive. Um, and you were a, a PM also, a PM lead for Hotmail, which is obviously now Outlook.com. Uh, and prior to that, you used to lead engineering teams uh, for Microsoft Office and you know, their sundry enterprise software businesses uh, across SharePoint and other areas. And you got a ton of pa- patents and all kinds of good stuff going on. And, and uh, you were, you're an alumni from the University of Waterloo, um, where you also worked at Trilogy Software during school. So <clears throat> very, very impressive stuff. Um, so I think there is approximately 1 million things we could get into today. But first of all, um, tell us a little bit about Mattermost, because some people will be familiar, well, many people will be familiar with Slack, um, and people will often compare Slack to Mattermost. But how is Mattermost different to Slack for those people who are unfamiliar with it? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, the high level of, you know, people are using Slack, people are using Microsoft Teams, people are using Mattermost. They're all sort of messaging collaboration platforms. So this is, you know, going everywhere from like ICQ to MSN Messenger, like everyone sort of knows like messaging and we do it in our ICQ, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Wow. ICQ, bring in the, bring in the nostalgia back. <laughs> yeah, just for historical reference. Um, and, you know, the space of messaging in our personal lives and at work has just been around a long time. And now there's sort of a different way to work. It's a little bit more IRC based. Um and you know, if you look at the market today, there's basically three segments, right? You've got the first mover, which is Slack, right? They, they got it right. And there's lots of other things like HipChat and the products, but Slack kind of got it right. And they're the first mover. And that's a very material segment. You've got sort of a second segment, which is the incumbent. And that's Microsoft, right? Microsoft Teams comes from Skype for Business, which comes from like a link and a long legacy of, of messaging products. Um, and you've got an incumbent that is, is now there. The third category is open source. And Mattermost, that's kind of where, you know, we are, that's kind of where we uh, plant our flag. And the same way that you think about those three segments, the first mover, the incumbent, and open source, you'll see that pattern across all industries. You'll see it in the database layer. You'll see it in, you'll see it in the operating systems layer. You'll see it in the virtualization layer. You'll see it in the networking layer. There's the incumbent. There's, you know, a sort of first move in the new technology, and then you've got open source. And what's actually happening over time is open source is kind of the laggard in historically, but now it's actually much more forward leading. So you look at companies, you look at technologies like Terraform and Vault and GetLab, you see all this innovation that's happening, and it's really coming from the open source segment. So that's how we think of ourselves. Hey, messaging collaboration is a category in Slack's S1. It's a $30 billion category. 
and we are in that open source segment of messaging collaboration. You know, one one thing on that note that I, I keep hearing from people is, uh, well, mainly from Microsoft, is how great Microsoft's Teams is doing. You know, more and more customers, more and more users. And, you know, as a consultant, I work with lots of different companies and therefore have to use lots of different messaging platforms and video platforms and other things. And there is only, I think, in my entire career as a consultant, there's only ever been one company that I've ever worked with that's using Teams. It doesn't really match the what I hear from Microsoft about the growth of Teams. And maybe I'm just working with different types of companies. But what are you seeing specifically as the impact of Teams? Because we all know that Slack is especially in tech circles, is very, very popular. But what about Teams? What are you seeing from, from your market research and, and what your customers are saying? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what you'll see in sort of like larger enterprises um, is really people that use uh, Exchange for email, right? Which is pretty much like Fortune 500 and many, many enterprises. And what, what the movement is, hey, Exchange for email moving to cloud with Microsoft 365 Okay, well, that makes sense. And then sort of bundled with that email and office is going to be Teams, the messaging platform. And it's going to be sort of all integrated. So Teams, you know, it can be, is it a messaging platform? Is it a front end to OneDrive? Is it a front end to SharePoint? The answer is yes. And uh, in that in that sort of ecosystem of, of Microsoft, it's just the way that you the, the way that you do messaging. So um, and it's, it's very general purpose and it's very sort of pre-integrated with the Microsoft stack. So you'll see, you know, in that, in that three segment model, that's the that's the incumbent. Then you've got sort of like the that that first mover model. It's like, okay, well, you know, these are these are startups, and they're not using, or they're sort of different types of companies that really aren't as deeply integrated with Microsoft. They're more um, sort of diverse, and they use different tools. They'll use Atlassian. They'll use they'll use sort of use Atlassian as, as opposed to like the Azure DevOps stack. They'll be using AWS as opposed to Azure. They're going to have a lot more sort of diversity in the the systems and the approaches that they take, um, and then you'll see you'll see more more uh, choices over there. Um, do you think? Uh, do you think? I mean, this is. Feel free to say I don't feel comfortable answering this question, Jono. But what do you think of Slack and, and Teams? Like, as your competitors, do you think they're any good? I mean, like for example, I I I think Mattermost is excellent. I think Slack is decent. And I think Teams is, frankly, it's it's okay. But I'm just curious what your take on it is. I think it's really about use cases and profiles. I'll say that, like, I think they're all good products for a certain for a certain user profile. I would start, I would think of it this way, which is like long term, right? Like, you're, and you kind of alluded to this earlier. It's like, well, Slack's public and Microsoft's gigantic, and and Mattermost is sort of a startup. Like, how do you think about going against these very large? Um, organizations and all their engineering resources and, you know, their marketing and the capital they have access to in the public markets. And it's like, well, what does a startup going to do? And there's this, this is, and the way you think about it for us, it's like, okay, well, that's, that's kind of today, but where's the world in 10 years? And the world in 10 years, it's like the thing that looks kind of difficult now in 10 years kind of looks obvious because in 10 years, we believe there's going to be more open source. We think in 10 years, like whatever features are around today, we'll build, we'll build them. Like within 10 years, you've got a lot of time to go build everything those those folks want, right? Everything that the community, the end users want. Um, and, you know, I'll say that um, in 10 years, it looks obvious that all this infrastructure is moving to open source. It's going to have more choice. It's going to be more, um, it's going to have more choice. It's going to have more openness. It's going to be less vendor lock-in. There's all these properties of open source that are unique. And when you think in that frame, well, the competitors are really just a feature set and, you know, just moving down that list of features. And I'll say one last thing about open source, which is really powerful, is that in a planet of 7 billion people, right, if one of those people decide, hey, I really like this feature, I want to contribute to Mattermost, and I want to make the platform better, that impact is just enormous. That The, the impact that one person can have is really enormous. We have over 1,000 contributors They've built so much for us, right? They built like we have one person who built a translation infrastructure that now goes into 16 languages. You know, the the whole desktop application was one person who built it by themselves initially uh, and contributed. Now it's like it's a whole team. So I think of those two things, like 10 years out and where does open source go? Well, and, and you know, we always say, right, that we should learn from history. Um, and, and history has taught us, especially when it comes to infrastructure, that open source repeatedly wins. I mean, just look at what's happening, of course, right now with 
with with Kubernetes. We've seen this with Linux. We've seen this with Docker. We've seen this with Vault. We've seen all, all these different examples of this. And I think one distinction that's important to share with our audience here is that one of the major benefits of Mattermost here is that you can run your own backend, right? So with Slack, I think many many people are very uncomfortable with the idea of all of their discussion being in kind of like a SaaS service. It's all in there on their data center. But with Mattermost, you can differentiate here. And it's is that when you think about the real value of the open source piece, is it primarily in the infrastructure side, or do you believe that it actually ties to the desktop? Because historically, the desktop side of of, of open source, such as Linux on the desktop and other examples, has struggled a little bit more. Whereas the infrastructure piece has been very very successful. How how would you break that down? Yeah, that's that's a great question in terms of like sort of the, the infrastructure and the desktop kind of front end and back end. I think what's happened you know recently is that you know designers have really gotten into open source and they can see the immense impact that they can have, and uh, that that focus on design is kind of how all software is going. And you've got these amazing tools um, like React, React Native that really build these experiences. So I think that open source has absolutely come to the front end. I think design with the right teams, the right composition is is a very high priority. So um, I think you can win. In, and I think, you know, you've got that natural advantage in back-end infrastructure. And I think now you've moved to the front end. You can win a lot there now, too. It's the community is there. The technologies are there. And the emphasis is there. Well, one of the things I think is cool, and uh, as a... As a I'm not sure whether this is a caveat or a disclosure or possibly a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B... Uh, but I, um, you know, Mattermost, you, you lovely people were a client of mine for a while. And um, so I got to work fairly closely. This is a few years back, but I got to, to work fairly closely with you, um, Ian, and and your team. And I was always, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the show, but I was always very, very impressed with the Mattermost community because uh, I remember saying this to you when I when I first started working with you. It reminded me a lot of when I first joined Canonical and was working on the Ubuntu community. There was there's just this culture of 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 meaning, of belief, a sense of we're building something that's going to have a, a notably positive impact in the world. And I want to come to the open core element a little bit later on, but I think a lot of companies who are focusing on a bit on something of an open core model um, will will love the idea of open source and community collaboration. But they'll be when it come when the rubber hits the road and they actually start doing it. They're actually quite nervous about it, and I didn't see that at Mattermost. You know, I mean, you just gave a couple of examples of the translations piece and the desktop client and and a multitude of areas where people were, were getting involved. You know, looking at your history, it looks like you didn't come from an open source background. You were at Microsoft, and you know, I'm I'm pretty sure that the games you were working on uh, in the gaming company weren't open source. How did you adapt to that and able to lead that culture? To have that kind of impact, because most a lot of leaders who don't come from an open source background, they don't, they don't necessarily do that very well, you know. Yeah, that's that's a great question. It, it, the funny thing is, in the backstory here is really, you know, when I kind of grew up at Microsoft, right? Like when I, that was my sort of first job out of college. Um, it Microsoft is very very strong at community. Like I don't think people understand this. Right? No, I agree. Open, yeah, yeah, open source is big, but like. You know, Mattermost with, you know, um, its developer programs, with its most valuable professional programs, the people that support Office, the community is absolutely massive. And they really engage with those communities. 97% of Microsoft revenue when I was there went through partners. Hmm. So I actually started not in the open source community. I started in the Microsoft community. And these were, it's, it's different. So these are people that are making, like, they're building businesses off of the Microsoft ecosystem, they're becoming partners. They do implementation work. They do systems integration. Um, there's OEMs, like there's like the whole like win, like all the PC manufacturers. That's partners, right? So um, when I moved to video games, you know that was community as well. And uh, as I was moving into open source, I was really studying these models. And what you know, I kind of realized one, one of these people shared with me is that open source is an economic model, right? It's not just a licensing program, but what you have is you have the interest and what, in, what econ economy is, it's um, how do people behave under incentives? So looking at open source, it's like, okay, my incentives are I can make a big difference, right? In this open source project, I can learn some amazing technology. I will have a portfolio piece for the rest of my you know, career that I can always talk to. I built that thing in Mattermost. It's being used by, it's 
Mattermost is being used to take people to space. It's being used to fight COVID. It's being used to keep you know the world secure, to protect our financial systems. And just wow, I'm a person off this. I'm just a person who's you know working at home, and I can make this contribution. So think of all the incentives that you have, and 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 put them all together. And then that's how you build community. And some of the work that you know you and I that we worked on together, I think that was always a theme. It's it's like, what are all the incentives and benefits? And that creates this enormous flywheel. And I I, I agree with you because it's like an exchange of value, right? Is that you know the traditional exchange of value in in a financial economy is I give you some money and you give me a product or a service. Whereas what I love about open source and what I love about community is that. Um, for many people in, a, in an economy, and we see this often discussed in, in politics, um, some people just don't get access. They just don't have an opportunity to thrive in that environment because they don't have the money. They don't have the opportunities. There is a systematic bias against them. Whereas in open source, one of the things I love about it is anybody really can come into the Mattermost community and and have an opportunity. It's going to require hard work. And it sounds like what you're saying, you know, I don't put words in your mouth, is that when you were at Microsoft, it wasn't necessarily open source, uh, but those same principles of that exchange of value were very present. Because I've certainly seen, I mean, I've, a lot of people don't realize just how good at community Microsoft are. Like your MVP example is a, just a brilliant example of that. They were a client of mine as well. And it's incredible the work that they've done there. Yeah, completely agree. I think that, that the thing you mentioned, exchange of value, I would frame it slightly differently because that, that's very transactional. I would almost think of that as a celebration of value. So the example is if I'm a Microsoft partner and I do amazing work on this customer, right? It's not like I, I get amplified, right? I get the case study from Mattermost. I'm featured. I get marketing. I get their whole, their whole field organization is sending me leads to, and they're sending me more business because I did such a great job. And so. The, yeah, I think it's a good point. Yeah. yeah. It, how do you, because ex- that's what, because remember, I also came from video games, right? And video games is not an exchange of value. It's a celebration of value. Like when people play and they do really great. So there's, um, there's, there's just a, another additional aspect. I, I build on the exchange of value and say there's a celebration about it's even higher. Did you see when you were there, because you were at Microsoft for just under six years, um, <clears throat> um, and it was like, I think it was 2004 to 2009, something like that. And that was in that period of time when Microsoft were were very antsy about open source. Um, you know, I think we'd moved on a little bit from the Linux or the GPL as a cancer, <laughs> those, yeah, those days yeah. of, 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 of Microsoft's uh, nervousness about this. But did you see internally kind of... Um, that change happening. I'm just curious to see how, how, what it was like, because obviously from the outside, I mean, I know a bunch of people who work at Microsoft and they said the thing that really influenced it was as the leadership started changing. And I was just curious what your take on it was. Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, the leadership at Microsoft, you know, that, that I knew like, like, you know, people like Scott Guthrie, right? Like they've, they, um, and like even Satya, they've elevated people who were like just I mean, there, there's a lot of really great people at Microsoft, but some of the people they've elevated are just like, they're so good. Um, and, and people I really admire and they're, um, and they're very thoughtful. And yes, I hundred percent agree. Um, that change in leadership was also a change in sort of viewpoint. I'll give you a very concrete example. Um, one of the managers I worked with at Microsoft ran the basically campaign against Linux in enterprise. And oh, really? So remember, I was there 04 to 09, right? And he had this poster, like, framed in his office of Windows Server Share versus Linux Share, right? And um, Microsoft had put all this stuff out in the market saying, you know, why, you know, you have to use Windows Server and why Linux is not good for enterprise and, and you know, all the things that Microsoft said during that time. And they had the share of Linux and it looked like sort of Napoleon's march into winter. It just kind of share of Linux kept, kept getting pushed and pushed, pushed out of enterprise. And that was, then that was like a trophy. That was like a framed print um, <laughs> for the team, right? That's like, that's the award. Um, and now, you know, we talked about a decade, right? So that was like 04 to 09. 10 years later, Azure runs more Linux than it runs Windows Server. It's, it's, the change is profound. I mean, it's, it is just profound. I mean, Satya as well just seems to be just killing it. 
<laughs> Ted. I have a little bit of an inside track because, as you know, my wife is the COO at uh, GitHub, and obviously yeah. they're they're owned by Microsoft. And it's just I don't hear hear anything other than positive commentary about Satya's work from Microsoft employees and GitHub employees. So it's yeah. What do you think? Do you have a sense beyond? I mean. What I think what you're touching on there as well, Ian, is this kind of like that you we all get into our cultural bubble, right? And I imagine that manager that you're referring to, probably been at Microsoft for a while, really understood, you know, just the the culture of you build great software, you deliver a great experience for your customers, you get it out there and it builds increased demand and and like customer lifetime value. And that is um I can imagine at the time folks like that were looking at Linux as this kind of there wasn't really much of a business around Linux at the time. Um, well, I guess in 2004 there was, but certainly in the earlier days of Linux there wasn't. And it was just a very, very different culture. Was it that, do you think that Microsoft went through that kind of cultural change? And did you pick up anything from that cultural change, if it did happen, which I'm assuming it did, that you kind of took into your businesses that you've been running? Yeah, I think that absolutely. I think that the, the Microsoft culture changed a lot with the with the CEO change. Um, and I think a lot with a lot of the, the VP and leadership changes. And there's some just wonderful people that were there and, and sort of moved on. Um, but I think the one thing that I'll, I'll sort of even echo that I took away from Microsoft was really community. And even if you look at the new Microsoft, right? They've, they're after the, they, they buy communities, right? GitHub is a community. LinkedIn is a community. Right. And because the software, they're pretty good at building software. I mean, after after many versions, after after a few versions, they're very good at building software. Um, <laughs> there's you just have to stay with a, a product long enough to have those iterations. Um, <laughs> right. And but the community is so powerful. Right. Like the open source community, embracing developers, really caring about IT professionals. So I'll give you an ex- a concrete example of how, how we did this in Mattermost. It's, you know, when we think about like, OK, you want to self-host it. It is a single Linux binary under MIT license. Single Linux binary under MIT license. That's because we really care about the IT professionals, right? We want that community and we want things for them. It's easy to install, right? Database, MySQL or Postgres. You know, NoSQL is all the rage and it's so cool. But like, think of think of the IT pro. Think of the person trying to install it, maintain it, right? It's like, okay, simple, right? Single binary, MySQL, Postgres, it's easy. And that's why one of the reasons why Mattermost is adopted so much is because we really care about the community. We build for those personas and we listen to them, right? And they're like, oh, you should do it this way. Oh, you should do it that way. Here's why this, this and that. Um, you know, we, we want to listen to everything. We'll still make the, we'll still try to, we'll still make our own decisions based on the analysis. But that community focus and that focus on what that persona needs versus, you know, what we think is cool. Uh, is is something I really learned from Microsoft. Yeah, no, I I, I I absolutely agree with you. And kind of bringing it back a little bit to to Mattermost and the product itself, because one of the things I'd like to kind of get a sense from you, Ian, here is you know Slack. They put out Slack put out the first uh, initial release back in August two thousand and thirteen, and Mattermost was founded, if I'm correct, uh, in two thousand fifteen. Um, so this was a couple of years after Slack came Slack came out, and I don't know when you put out your very first f- very first release, but that's obviously a two year window where Slack had been through some iteration. They'd done some learning, they'd built some customers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When you started Mattermost and you were looking at Slack as a competitor that you wanted to build a more compelling, more dynamic, more more engaging platform for for your ideal customer. Putting the open source piece to one side and, and it being open source, just from a pure using it, the, the you know the, the the UI, the feature set, those kinds of things. What were the most critical things that you really wanted to focus on? Like, what were the priorities in your mind that you were like, we have to nail this to be, even be in the same conversation as Slack? Yeah, it's a great a great question. I would say that the initial sort of origin story of Mattermost, we were a video game company. And I won't name the other predecessor to Slack, but there was another product out there that was very similar. Um, and uh, it was a small, it was a startup that got bought by a big company. And we were, we, we lived on it as a video game company because we were all remote, right? We're all working from different areas and we messaging was our office. And when that product that got bought started having quality issues, it would crash, it would lose our data. It was so frustrating. Um, we and and we just we just okay. How do we leave? How do we export data? It wouldn't let us export. 
when we stopped paying our subscription, it paywalled us from our own information. We had like 26 gigs of information in that in that SaaS service. So, you know, it was just like this felt like it, it felt like a betrayal. It's like you, you count on the SaaS service and it lets you down and it doesn't give you your information. And, you know, it's it's this and you're just sort of so locked in. So that was really the genesis. And we said, you know, hey, we're, we're a video game company. We have like 10 million hours in our own messaging platform in the games, right? Like we, we can build this. Um, and, you know, just like any injury firm, we built it like three times. Um, like the first time was like, it was, it was completely different. It was like, it was, a, it was a little bit more Facebooky. It was written in like Python to Django and we sort of prototyped and, and did different things. But ultimately we built it for ourselves. And when we started, you know, getting to a certain point, we're like, wait a minute, this is, this is like, this is like real software now. This is a thing, <laughs> or, <laughs> an actual or, thing. At, at least for us. Um, yeah. And then we end up, um, uh, we were a Y Combinator back startup doing the games. And I actually met uh, Sid from GetLab at uh, one of the YC events. And we were just, I was showing him what I was building. And he said, oh, you know what? You should open source that, right? Now, we just talked about like Ian, who just came from like Microsoft, whose boss was like, you know, fighting <laughs> Linux, like <laughs> celebrating like the, the, the pushing out of Linux, right? So I'm like, open source. It's like, yeah. wait, what? Um, <laughs> And then, and then literally he was showing me like how GetLab worked. This is, I think, GetLab just before their Series A or, or maybe just around the same time. Um, yeah. And he was just showing me like, oh, here's the GetLab business model and here's what we do and here's, the, here's how licensing works. And, and, his, and GetLab is really working as a model, right? And um, as I sort of, as we sort of like analyzed it, and then Sid basically put it this way. He's like, okay, you got a prototype right now. If you uh, open source the prototype, and people like it, you can always close source the rest, right? The prototype won't take anyone else, you know, that far. You built it with very little, not a lot of time, not a lot of people. But if you open source your prototype and no one cares, just stop working on it, right? It's like that's the struggle <laughs> saying. You, you give them the product, you give them all the source code, no one cares, just like stop what you're doing. It doesn't make sense. And that was such compelling logic. That uh, you know, you ran the experiment, and we like we open sourced it, and it was just bananas. Like you know, it wouldn't, it, it was yeah, because it was just uh, it just took off. I mean, going back to like when we build stuff, like we kind of built it for ourselves. So it's like yeah, we we want those things to be easy to manage, right? So single Linux binary, MIT license, all the core features of Slack, MySQL, Postgres, own your own data, like like yes, 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 right? So it's so easy for an admin. It was a one line Docker install. I'd be like, okay, boom. Um, and it's really started picking up because it was so easy and because it filled a very clear need that people had, which is, which is man, it's like, Hey, I just want to self-manage my, my messaging platform. I just want to be able to control my data. And I don't want people knowing the names of all my people that I work with. I don't want them to know the IP addresses and locations. I don't want them to have any chance of knowing the message contents. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it really just took off. So that, uh, it, it filled a really clear need. We really built it for ourselves to use. And it was uh, just just amazing the the adoption uh, once you, once the community started. Wait, it's it's kind of interesting as well because back around the two thousand was was this around two thousand fifteen, two thousand fourteen, two thousand fifteen sort of time frame? Uh, yes, right. Because back around that time as well, it's it's if I remember correctly, especially I think in open source circles, IRC was really starting to show its age. And I think there were a lot of people who were looking at IRC and thinking, there's got to be something better than this, but I don't want to go and have all of my data in Slack. And there is the other, the, you know, the other tool that shall not be named that wasn't very good <laughs> from my recollection. Um, and people, I think, were wanting that kind of real-time experience. It, it, yeah, there's probably an element of timing here, but also Sid Sabrandi from GitLab. He, to me, he's one of the most remarkable people in open source like his his not only only his level of insight but also their commitment i've mentioned gitlab a bunch of times in this podcast you know their company handbook and the, how open they are in in the, in the way that they work and the way they approach their community they're just they're fabulous they do i can't think of having a better mentor at that particular time you know that's pretty cool um so what what happened when you started having customers? I mean, what 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 do they want at those in those earliest stages? Were they saying, you know, we want it to be in a different shade of blue or something, or were they coming to you with very specific needs that you you then that then formed your product roadmap, or did you approach your roadmap in a different way? 
Yeah, it's really based on the customer. So one of our sort of leadership principles at the company and part of our culture is really customer obsession, right? So how do you always, you know, start and end with the customer perspective? And our first, you know, we had a, we had a few customers, but one was um, a pretty significant um, technology company um, that, uh, that really wanted high availability and single sign-on. They're like, okay, we want this. Um, and we kind of had like a SKU program. Like we kind of knew that like we're going to build the paid. We didn't figure it out from Sid, right? You have to have a paid product that has an audience that's different than your free product. Right. Cause, and so our free product is like, Hey, this is for developers. And if you want to install it and it's easy, you can manage it and just kind of get going and all the collaboration stuff you need. So, and then what we sell our paid product to is like, well, once you have all these happy developers and users, what you want to do is want to manage it. So you need like, you know, account management and, and uh, single sign-on, high availability, AD or LDAP integration, all these sort of like IT manager things. Um, and then uh, our, our first sort of like major customer who's uh, uh, in sort of like high-tech and manufacturing uh, and sort of Bay Area and, you know, pretty amazing. They, uh, they really wanted some of these, I think they really wanted those, those sort of high availability and single sign-on features. So we created the SKU. Uh, it made sense. We we closed the deal and just we just started on that. And we got like more and more customers that would come in and be like, yeah, we want the same thing. Like they just wanted the same thing. You put it on the website. It's got a price sheet. Price is reasonable. They just, they just buy and they just go. Um, and then they expand. They, a lot of people internally, once the small team starts to use it, more and more folks uh, join. And, uh, and yeah, just make sure that the customers are happy. You're, you're very transparent with the feature roadmap, where things are going. And, and were you, I mean, I, th- I can imagine putting myself in the shoes of <clears throat> someone who has started a, a business that's taking on, you know, back, back, back in those days, Slack was, was really gathering a lot of traction. Um, I can imagine just staring up at, 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 at this Goliath company and thinking, okay, how do we take a piece of that? And how do we, um, how do we get, the, how do we get customers who would ordinarily go with Slack? How did you approach the market? Like, how did you woo people towards Mattermost? Did you do active marketing towards their customers uh, or pr- prospective customers? Or was it more of a, we built it and they mainly came along and, and, and found us? Yeah, we didn't. We, we really don't do really good marketing, actually. Um, you know, we're, we're, so we haven't cra- kind of cracked another marketing. Well, and we actually don't see ourselves competing with Slack that much. Um, what happens is, hey, if you want to run, if you like, at the time, I felt like, and this might, I don't know if this, this is probably in the ballpark. There are probably 100 to 200 sort of Slack-like products out there, right? Um, I, won't, I won't name them all, but like there's a lot. And then as Slack was growing, there's a lot of, you know, Slack for, I don't know, healthcare workers, Slack for uh, banks, uh, Slack for, you know, XYZ. Um, and there were so many startups, right? Because like everyone in like their, you know, first or second year of, of college in a CS course is like, oh, make a messaging client. Right. Like that's like a standard task. I mean, you could use like <laughs> right. Meteor was like a framework. Meteor literally had a, 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 like a contest, like how many people can build like Slack alternatives using Meteor. Right. Cause like it was like, <laughs> them, right. right. Um, so what we actually found was, you know, there was um, a lot of competition for those sort of like, you know, closed source proprietary, just kind of like Slack, but a little different. Um, and for us, we're just, we just kind of, we didn't really, we weren't really in that noise. I mean, you'll see blog posts of them comparing and all that, but what we were really in is people who cared about sort of two things. One is trust, right? Having all the source code, transparency, no vendor lock-in, own the data, that kind of trust. And we were very, very differentiated. And the second is sort of developer, right? Like somebody who looks at us and they really care about the fact that we're written in Golang. React, React Native, that were sort of very thoughtful of technology. Like these are the people who like really care about like how things are built, and and then they can they can read the source code, understand the architecture, and you get and and they can start customizing Mattermost. Right? There's so much extensibility that we allow um, that sort of developer uh, ethos is is this like sort of second second piece that people come to us for. So. Um, and in that context, there's really not other things on the market that kind of do the same. So we've kind of been in a um, in a segment that we don't see a lot of sort of natural competitors to us. Right. 
Right. Well, what's interesting as well to me about Mattermost is um, <clears throat> you're a very remote company, right? Um, are, are you all remote or do you have an, any offices um, entirely so, remote? So what happens is like there's a difference between remote and work from home. Some people have situations where it's like difficult to be all at home. So we'll find like, you know, places for them to go. But we don't have like a central office. Like I work from home, the execs work from home. But like that's, that's, that doesn't mean like people don't can't get like a Regis or a WeWork somewhere. Yeah, exactly. They can go and work. Because, yeah, I mean, some people, I know a lot of people who are like, I need to work from a co-working <laughs> space. Just It's just the, it's the environment I need to be in. Um you know, there's been a lot of talk recently, and I do want to get into COVID-19 a little bit because I think you'll be able to offer some really interesting insight, Ian. But um, just before COVID-19, just building a, the business that you've built to the size that it is, because Matamos has got a pretty sizable number of employees now. Um, what has been the hardest thing? We always People always talk about the, the great decisions that they made um, in building a remote and a uh, work-from-home culture and business and... Um, but what are the things that Matamost either wrestled with or struggled with and the key learnings that you took away? Because there's going to be some some execs who are going to be listening to this and they're going to be thinking about really building out more of a, an online kind of workforce. And they're probably thinking, okay, what are the things I should be looking out for? What are the, what are the bumps in the road? What, what, would you sh- what would you share? Yeah, thanks for the question. I actually get this a lot. Like as, as the, you know, as the uh, pandemic hit, like people just started like, I got pinged. I mean, all this remote companies got pinged a lot. Um, yeah. The, the common thing, if I if I say one thing to those other execs and communities um, thinking about like working remote, listening is so important because you don't have hallway conversations, you don't have um, you don't have cafeterias, you're not like waiting in line for for uh, an espresso in the morning. So listening becomes so important. You have to be very deliberate about how you listen and about how you have communication channels, right? Um, of course, you know, uh, messaging platforms, you have social channels, you're talking about whether it's Game of Thrones or music or, you know, funny things that kids say, which is one of our most hilarious channels. Um, <laughs> there's, you know, that there's that sort of connection, that sort of asynchronous. Um, but the, the one listening, the one piece that we do that's a little different that um, is, is this concept of remote listening tours. And I actually got like a blog post somewhere. So remote listening tours is the idea that um, executives or me as CEO, and we announced this like all hands, everyone knows about this. Um, we're, I'm going to do remote listening tours as a leader. So I might skip, you know, one level down, two levels down, and, you know, just get uh, a meeting where it's, it's somewhere between, call it three to seven people, um, you know, sometimes from the same team, some from different teams, and it's just a pure listening session. So I go in there and, you know, in the calendar invite, they have all the, like it's, it's all written out, like what we're exactly we're going to do. So there's no surprises. We've talked about all hands. So it's not like, Hey, I'm surprising you with like an exec review, but it's just <laughs> so right. It's are people, are people like? honest in those. Yeah. Cause I can imagine a lot of people showing up to those kinds of meetings and, and, uh, talking about all the great things, you know, all the great, all the great decisions that you're making, <laughs> but do, are, do people, you know, are people honest? Are they frank? Do they do they do they share uncomfortable feedback? Because I imagine that you set expectations that you want this to be open, right? Yeah, I think there's a there's a, I think there's a mix of comfort levels, right? Definitely people who've who've been here longer. So I think I think it's people who've been here longer, a little bit more comfortable. People who are a little bit new, they're like, "What is this?" Um, and that's why it's great to have a group. Um, and then you can see like you know who's going to go first, kind of sets the tone. All it is is a like and a wish, right? And people can skip. You can pass. You don't, like, if you only have a like, you only have a wish, that's okay. And what happens is people see what other people care about, and they start, they'll start chiming in, have conversations. And what happens is like you, you discover so much, and they discover a lot. And, and you listen. What I do is I just write down the notes, and then at the end of it, I read back everyone's notes, make sure I got everything right. Um, I ask if there's more. And then these notes are circulated. They, they know up front these notes are circulated with the leadership team and they can be sort of, you know, shared, shared with different you know, parts of the company. Um, but really listening. So, and what happens is when you, when you come to this, um, you know, my ask is like, hey, if you've got something to say to me, like definitely like let's make sure that your managers also hear it. Um, and it gets people thinking. And uh, so I think that listening is something that's going to be missing from an office. And you can you can systematize it. It's it's really powerful. We have discovered so many blind spots with it, um, fixed a lot of small things, even larger things. And I think uh, it just creates a culture where people don't feel a little bit less isolated. They don't miss out on like the line the lineup with the barista, 
and they don't miss out a little bit less in the hallway conversation and it's sort of like getting that that sort of um what do they call it sort of like accidental information yeah yeah exactly that kind of water cooler effect of uh of just bumping into people at the office and it strikes me that i i love i love that you do this ian because it strikes me that the notion of that is intuitive in in principle like i, I can imagine a lot of people listening to this and thinking yeah he's totally right we should be doing this we should be having intentional listening tours and then and then you get in front of your computer and your phone and you're busy. You've got all the email to deal with and you've got most and Slack messages and whatever else. And then you don't make time for it. And it strikes me that a lot of success in remote companies are people who um, identify what's important in human relationships. And they intentionally, like you said, they systematize. It reminds me of in The Seven, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. He talks about... Um, uh, tasks that are urgent and tasks that are important. And we're always focusing on the urgent and the important stuff. But the quadrant that we don't tend to look at is the stuff that is not urgent, but is important. And I would, I would file your listening tour very much into that category. Um, have you found that in working with your leaders, that it's been um, tricky to kind of make them intentional? Um, and that the people because I, I know a lot of managers who will just get busy and they'll say, oh, sorry, yeah, I just didn't get to it yet. But I, I, I was working on a new release. There'll always be an excuse for not doing those kinds of things. Um, I think at our, we have the leadership principle about high impact, which is like, how do you make sure you're working on you know, high impact things versus low impact things? And just that framing, it's like, hey, are we working on high, high impact things or low impact things? And you can kind of, it, it just, it sort of like self-corrects as you kind of reflect. One exercise that I think is, is super useful is this concept of, an, of a sort of energy audit, um, which is take a look at the calendar that you had, you know, a few, like take a month, right? And just kind of look and, and one, you know, see your energy. Like, do you feel like these, because energies are really good. Um, hey, this feels like a really good meeting. Things went forward. Like it really helped. Oh man, this energy is kind of low because at the end of it, there wasn't a lot of high impact. Like you can tell, right? Um, so and when, you, when you say energy, are you talking about kind of like the enthusiasm and the dynamism, that kind of energy? Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. So, and so I think there's, there's two factors there. One is how is it high impact and impact for me, like correlates with, with sort of energy levels. Um, and, and when you think about that, it's that energy is really important because it's not, ah, this is a really important thing. It's not just your time. It's your energy. In, internally, we have this thing called mana, right? It comes from our game, game, you know, roots so mana is not about your time it's about the energy you put in right so if you have a ticket that's like oh my god that's a one-line code change just do that no you don't understand like the mana the energy it takes to like think through all these changes this critical piece of the system right and make that change right so it's not it's not about it it'll take 10 minutes it's not a 10 minute fix it's like a one day fix of like thinking through everything and then that one line change right Energy is the same way when you think about your calendar, right? Like what is the, what is draining for you and what is energizing for you and making sure that the, 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 your energy is creating a lot of impact. This is super interesting because, uh, it, 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 it reminds me of a conversation I had with someone about, about three or four months ago and we were talking about remote working and my philosophy over the years has been that people who work from home or they work from a co-working space, they go through what I refer to as waves. You'll just have some weeks where you are, you're just in the zone. You know, you're in that, that, that psychological flow that people often talk about, which is another, another gaming principle. And, and then there'll be some weeks where people will be just tired and they'll be distracted. They'll have other things on their mind. And it sounds like when you're talking about energy, it kind of relates to that. But that to me begs a couple of questions. One is, um, is energy like a battery that can be drained? Um, and to what extent does energy vary between different people? Because I, I know some people where they have an endless supply of energy and without wishing to sound egotistical, I'd probably put myself in that, in that category. I'm just always excited about what I'm doing. There's never a moment. I mean, there's times when I'm, I just want some time off, but I'm, I'm generally excited about what I'm doing. And I, and I know you're the same way, Ian, but there are other people who, will we'll have a lot of energy during certain portions of the day, but then they, they get worn out quickly. So in evaluating that energy piece, how would you evaluate like just the, the reserves and kind of that impact on them? 
Got it. Wow, there's, that's a, there's a lot of that question. Let me try to take a few pieces. Uh, let me take a, take in a few pieces. Um, one is you mentioned flow from sort of game design. So the researcher, I think it's Mikhail Ch- Csikszentmihalyi. I'm not sure if that's. I can't pronounce it. Yeah, <laughs> I tried. Uh, <laughs> but it's a great. It's a great. It's a. Uh, it's a great concept. What it does is, uh, it's we have this concept built on that. It's uh, it's an art handbook. It's called Learn, Master, Teach. So Learn, Master, Teach is about flow. So when you're playing a game, the game gets like 10%, like you get 10% better at the game, but then the next level is like 10% harder, right? So as you get better, the challenge gets bigger and that creates this, this thing in your brain that is like flow. And it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's very visceral. Um, Tetris is the most sort of famous example. You can feel the flow in Tetris as you get better and as the levels get harder, right? That's why those games get so, um, you get you get such a powerful pull to them. So learn, master, teach is kind of the same thing. It's like we want you to come in here and want you to learn, and we want you to master and become really good, and then we want to teach. So the bar as you as you get better in your skill, the the bar goes up for our expectations. And learn, master, teach is a natural it's a natural principle to put people in that flow state. In in terms of the energy that a human being sort of has. Um, that's what we want. We want that energy to increase. We want that skill to increase. We want that energy to increase. Uh, and some people will, if you're in the flow state and you have people who are naturally growing and being, um, and, and seeing the fruits of their rewards, then they've got a lot of energy. If you stagnate, if you're doing the same thing over and over again, especially in COVID, we can't go out. Everyone's like really bored. You can't challenge yourself. And you're just doing the same thing over and over again. That's, that's, that's really, that's really tricky. So, you know, being a remote company, this learn, master, teach, um, this this concept of flow state, this this background in in you know sort of human psychology and and behavior, um, I think those all come together, and we we use that to sort of figure out how do you how do you get more and more energy if you're working on the right things and you have the right culture and environment. It's 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 a really powerful principle because I like the idea of you know looking at a set of tasks, and I think what you touched on earlier on, Ian, about. Um, Many people will evaluate the impact of a task uh, based upon what the task is and how much time it takes to do it. Like your example of the single line code fix is a is a brilliant example of that. You know, to many people it may seem like a a, a trivial piece, but it may be a very very involved and draining bit of work to do that. Um, and overlaying over the top of that, the impact on that kind of energy, which is going to be driven by you know, what, what excites you and what interests you and the connection between the meaning of that work. Um, based upon what you, you've learned from this, what would you say, I don't even know if there's an answer to this question, to be honest with you, what would you say is something our listeners can, can do to optimize how they kind of get that energy? Like are the things that is there, are the things that people can do to, to stay in that kind of, to get into that flow state, to get into that energized state? Uh, while they still have, you know, they've still got to do things, frankly, that are boring and uninteresting to them. Got it. Um, that's that's a very big question. Yeah, um, I don't even I'll know try, if there's an answer to it. I'll, I'll try to give away. I'll, I'll try to share. Um, just to try to like, I think the most important thing is reflection, right? Just step back and sort of think about things, right? Like, take your calendar for the month right? Look over it, like print it out and, you know, or however you want to do it, like red, yellow, green, like actually just red, green. That's the easiest. What's giving you energy? What's a success? What was not a good use of your time? And just be brutally honest with that, right? And with that mindset, you can think about your categories and you can kind of revisit and you can change your behavior. Um, so I think that reflection is, there's the ROI of that is just, you know, the biggest thing you can possibly do. Yeah. Get some data. And understand and think, how do I then, I guess, how do I then change the relationship with, with the things that are read? Uh, that's very interesting. So um, I, just a, a continuation of this discussion really is, is COVID. I mean, COVID-19, obviously, it's had a profound impact on the planet. Um, and, it's, and it's very much had a profound impact on businesses. Um, a lot of businesses have been scrambling to go virtual and to get online. Um, Matamos has probably not had as much of a problem there because you've you've been online a, a, a remote and in office kind of uh, co-working space kind of business for a long time but how have you seen your company change through you know since march since this thing really started kicking off uh since march i would say and this is kind of a weird thing to say is like when it first started because we were remote only like we we didn't see a lot of change um 
like in terms of, or did they work? What was a big change for us when was when homeschooling hit, right? When the, when the schools start, start shutting down and then you have people scrambling and they got kids at home and their, their home situations are all over the place. Um, that's been super, that's been, you know, hard for, for a, a number of us, myself included. I've got two kids. My co-founder has four kids. Um, so I think that's going to change. And, you know, over time, we've been able to sort of adapt to it. So now we had the summer break, kids are back in school. Um, and it's not, it's not ideal, but I think we've sort of adapted a little bit. I think as part of that, so I think that's one is, is probably homeschool is the biggest sort of like, you know, like blip, right? Like it just really changed, you know, our ability to, um, it's really just changed, you know, just our, our sort of flow, like what we do every single day. It changed our, it changed our calendar. I think the second one is just, you know, being really thoughtful of um, energy levels in a, in a state because it's harder to recharge now for some people. Um, now, there's places where there are less locked down and they're, very, and they're actually very lightly affected. There's places that are more locked down. Um, I think summers, a lot of times where people travel and they spend time with family, I think the um, the isolation of being away from family for, for a number of us has been has been hard not be able to. Um, not be able to take those those sort of family you know gatherings and things like that. But I don't know if there's anything we did that's that different from from sort of like the rest of the world. Yeah, I know that there's there's another company and they interviewed their their teams and their teams. Uh, one of the key pieces of feedback that they received was the teams felt less productive um, throughout this time, which is not particularly surprising um you know given the fact that people are having to take time away to like you say help their kids with school and and all the rest of it but i've also met a lot of entrepreneurs who have said you know since covid uh really start kicked off that they've been weirdly productive um and i would actually put myself in that category like i've i don't know why um and my life hasn't changed dramatically other than not being on planes a huge amount um but i've been in more of a mode of, of productivity than 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 I think beforehand. Have you seen different differing viewpoints when it comes to productivity with either yourself or with with your employees? Um, I think there's a mix. I think some people are more productive. I think some people are less. Actually, one thing that happened during COVID that was I think um, very sort of reinforcing our culture is we kind of made this announcement about hey, we trust you, right? And made that really clear because in a remote only in a remote company. Like there's no supervision, right? And we're like, hey, everyone's situation is different. We're not going to create a policy, right? This makes sense to make a policy. Every every situation is different. We trust you to go figure it out. We trust you to go work with your man. We trust our managers. We trust our people. You know, if if you need a little time away, if you got to go figure something out, like we just trust that you're gonna you're gonna do that. And that was a big difference. Um, and when I did my listening tours uh, and during that during that period. People were saying, wow, that's amazing because I've got these friends who are fe- affected by COVID and they're being like watched like a hawk night and day to see like, you know, are they, you know, are they playing video games? Or are they actually still doing work? And it's such a cultural difference. Yeah. Without- I, I actually have a, yeah. I actually have a friend who's in that category. He, uh, he sells insurance and the company that he works for no remote working. And now he's obviously working from home and um, one of the things he shared with me was for him, I mean, he's a fairly tech savvy person. So switching to remote wasn't really that big of a deal, but he said, you just feel there's this kind of, there's this level of scrutiny and sometimes a level of distrust in some ways, um, that I imagine doesn't exist at, at Massimost and similar companies where you, you can't hire people into a remote company if you don't trust them. Right. You know, it's not like you're going to have a teacher in every classroom. So, um, so you know, I know we're kind of edging towards the end of, of, of this podcast. Um, it would I, it would be remiss if I didn't ask you what you think about this whole Slack filing an antitrust complaint uh, 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 over Microsoft Teams in Europe. What's your what's your take on that? Oh, um, that's interesting. I, I don't. I think it's. Um, I, I don't really know enough of the details. I'll say this is that. Um, when I was at Microsoft during the, that time period, Open Office was in this uh, was was lobbying the open the, the, the European Union to have an open standard for um, for the, the the Office document format. Right? Oh yeah, the the, uh, time, the ODF, yeah, exactly. And um, what was fascinating was the amount of the immense amount of work that Microsoft put into uh, 
its point of view. So like all the standards boards, like we literally had this, this animated PowerPoint of like all the different countries in that were involved in discussion and animation of like, were they yes or no? Yes or no. Who we sent, you know, to what organization and, you know, how that lobbying was going. And in the end, like Microsoft sort of got their way. Um, and, you know, it was sort of went on both sides because the, 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 the office document format format became more, um, came more open, right? At least, at least they, they, they allowed people to, you know, interoperate with it. Um, so, you know, a, a couple thoughts there. One is that was just this visceral experience of like the power of open source, right? In that, like how worried, you know, a proprietary company is when you have openness and, and, and um, when you have this openness and you have sort of more open competition. Um, in terms of, you know, what uh, is happening today, I would say that um, all policy is, is going to have sort of like people that benefit from the policy and then people who sort of benefit less. And the question of the policy is, uh, is it good for sort of consumers? Is it good for the customers at the end of the day? So I think my point of view is uh, whatever is best for the, like, my, my hope is that whatever comes out of it will be benefiting customers. And then, uh, yeah, it would benefit customers. And I've kind of seen it in action, but it also reveals like, um, it also, it also reveals like what are the undercurrents and, you know, what sort of, what are the principles that really matter? And we'll find out from the EU commission, you know, how, how they feel on it. Yeah. It's, I, I find the whole antitrust thing so fascinating because. When I first saw the news of this, my first gut reaction was Slack are scared of teams getting so much traction. And this is a means to to deal with that. Um, because I think when you look at antitrust, you know, a good example is Google. Like we had a conversation on, on another podcast that I do, Bad Voltage, with some friends um, about how um, there's concern around when you do a search on Google for something. Um, it will link off to other Google services like Google Maps in the search results. So the idea of services-based companies uh, integrating other products into their service is pretty standard pr- procedure, right? People do this a lot, but there's, there seems to be a threshold that some people feel steps into antitrust territory um, where it starts becoming a where it starts becoming a problem and but then you've got companies like Facebook and they've got you know WhatsApp and Instagram and you know there was talk of Microsoft acquiring TikTok and you know Facebook couldn't possibly acquire TikTok cuz then they'd probably you know step them over the line um it, it it just seems I don't know it just seems to me like um i i i it's very difficult to get a good read on this and i'll be curious to see how it actually pans out um final question um what's next for Mattermost so, you know, you've, you've had some amazing success. Uh, I know many people who use Mattermost and are, are big fans of it. Um, but what's next for the company? What's next for the product? Yeah, um, great question. So we're not, so <laughs> we're not making announcements yet. We definitely are working on announcements. Um, I would say the most important thing is uh, we continue to listen to customers. Um, and I'll, I'll share that. Uh, I'll, share, I'll share sort of like we continue to listen to customers. On those two themes of sort of like high trust and, and sort of developer, um, we're, you know, we really care. And actually, I think we got some, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about this, which is, I think it's in beta. I think it's open. Um, we're really thinking about this concept of like a DevOps command center. We're actually delivering sort of in the product of in betas, uh, this concept of having uh, more workflows uh, and uh, canonical tasks that are just more formalized, right? So everyone's got CICD, everyone's using, you know, a GetLab or Atlassian um, or Jenkins, and people are looking for sort of just more opinion ways, more opinionated ways to do it. And you'll see it a lot in plugins and things like that. But I think the general theme is like, out of the box, like people, there's a, there's a, you know, think about that, um, crossing the chasm piece, there's those early adopters who want, I want the flexibility, I want to do all these things. And then we start going to the majority, they really want, can you please just like tell me your opinion? Like, how do you want me to do this? Um, and I think as we sort of cross that chasm, we want to think about how do we make it, how do we go from these people who are um, love the flexibility, open source, and then how do we make it sort of like 
big animal pictures easy, right? Like this is how I do things. Um, and then the power is to have both, right? Because if we started off with big animal pictures, we didn't have the configurability, like we could fall on our face. But now that we have this platform that's really open, we can start being more opinionated. So I think as a theme, that's what you'll see in a number of announcements we're making. Yeah, very cool. Well, um, Ian, you know I'm a big fan of not just Matt and Most, but I'm a big fan of you and your approach. I like how you're just a really solid leader, and I think you've got you've built an amazing company. Um, and uh, yeah, I really uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And people can go and find out more about Matamost at matamost.com. I'll put it into the show notes. Um, and also, uh, I promise you, Ian hasn't asked me to say this, but I'm just going to mention it anyway. It seems like you guys are doing a ton of hiring. <laughs> so, so go and, if you if, if this excites you and you want you want to go and work at Matamost, go and check out their careers page as well because there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of roles here. So. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. I really, really appreciate that, too. All right. Take care. Take care. Thanks, Joe.